Welcome to the Why God Why podcast brought to you by Browncroft Community Church. I'm here with our producer, Dylan Carnival. I'm speaking for him because he's got a little bit of cold. My name is Peter Englert. I am the director of adult ministries, and I am here with my phenomenal co-host, John Amayo, who is the New York State crew director. Why God Why is a podcast where we ask the 21st century questions about God that you thought you never could. Today's guest is James Noble. He is a local Rochester defense attorney. And today's topic that we're going to ask him is why does the justice system seem so unjust? John. Wow. Are you ready for this? I think I'm ready, but I'm not sure. And But the fact that you labeled me phenomenal co-host makes me feel a little more ready for it, actually. So I, th- I appreciate that. No, I, I think this is a, such an important question, such a pertinent question for us that I hear discussed a lot in our society right now. I think one of the things that comes to mind as I think about it is we have unprecedented access to things that are happening all around the world. So we can see kind of injustice on a global scale that maybe generations before didn't have access to. They didn't have the ability to see kind of injustice across the globe in the way that we are continually fed it in our society at this point. And so I think there's a couple of reactions we can have to that. One is to kind of go, wow, this is so overwhelming. I can't deal with it. Another is to kind of go into reactionary mode and to go like, well, we're America. We got the best justice system in the world, so uh, it must be fine. And I don't think necessarily either one of those is the appropriate response. I think we need to take a serious look at it no matter what place in the world we are. And that includes our country and look at the positives and the negatives at the same time and and come face to face with it. So that's why I'm really excited to have this conversation today. Um, How about about you, Peter? What do you think about this? I'm going to just get super specific right now. You know, I think about the issue that we're dealing with in America right now of legalizing marijuana. And on one hand, you have people that say that's a slippery slope to being to having a society that deals more with drugs and we're allowing this harmful um, product to be out there in the open market. On the other hand, you have people that when they're talking about the justice system, there is inequality to people that can't get representation that it would help them and free up our prisons. And it's also a way for, you know, the state to make money off taxes. And I think that you have to be intellectually humble to even have that conversation and realize what's the best scenario. And I'm sure our guest has an answer for that, a response from that, but we also don't engage lawyers and judges to actually really know what's going on. And so, you know, I had coffee with James a few weeks ago and just, I was impressed by how thoughtful he was. And, you know, I think about, uh, I use this comparison a lot. On Sunday afternoons, it's very easy to look at the offensive coordinator and be like, well, I would have called this play and we would have gotten like, you know, 15 yards and stuff like that. I think we do that with the justice system. Well, you know, if you just did this without actually talking to someone that knows what they're doing. So I'm looking forward to it. James, as we get started with this conversation, we, we wanted to kind of start soft. You know, Tell us, what do you love most about your role and your job? Well, you know, it's an interesting question, and and 
I, I think a lot of people come at it differently. For me, I would say what I like the most is actually helping people. So, you know, I'm principally a criminal defense attorney. I do some other legal work, um, some personal injury work, some other things as well. But but mostly, and I've done criminal defense work, and uh, my career is definitely built on that. And you, you have the opportunity to interface with a human being who is probably at the lowest, if not one, you know, one of the lowest, if not the lowest point in their life. And oftentimes they, you might be the only person on their side. Their wife may have left them. Their family may have turned their back on them. You know, their kids don't speak to them anymore. You know, a lot of times there's a rift in the family whereby I'm really the only person supporting someone. And that can get tricky because, you know, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a friend. I'm your lawyer. But, you know, you do recognize opportunities where, you know, you can be human to someone and you can, you know, in, in fact, as a believer, show God's love to someone um, and sort of, you know, be there for them in a non-judgmental way. I try never to judge my clients. They, they've been judged by their friends, by their family, by law enforcement long before they got to me. It seems to me that additional judgment's not going to help them turn anything around. So I often have the conversation of, look, you know, just tell me everything. I'm, I'm not here to judge you about it. I'm here to help you with it. But without sort of knowing the facts and circumstances, it's hard for me to do my best work for you. And, and I think people respond to that pretty well because many people have never had a lawyer before. They don't know what to expect in the process. They, they know that they've either been arrested or accused or thrown out of their house or whatever the case might be. And, and you know, just to, to have someone treat them like a human being sometimes is a huge step in the right direction. So, you know, helping people is definitely what it's about for me. So would you say that your greatest challenge then is when you haven't built that trust? Because obviously you're working with people that are highly stressed, you know, they're going through so much, or is there another bigger challenge than that in your role? You know, relationships develop over time when someone's your client the same way they do in any other scenario in life. So, it, it, you know, I don't find it unusual and I'm not offended if someone, you know, maybe lied to me on the first interview and six weeks later it comes out, oh, well, I didn't tell you that because I was afraid you'd be mad at me or whatever the case might be. So, you know, trust is definitely an issue. I mean, having done this for 17 years now, I've got a pretty good sense of when people are being straight with me or not. Um, but, you know, one of the bigger challenges sometimes is is being able to represent the good in that person and that client to the DA or the judge or the other decision makers to, you know, there's a lot of variety of things we do. Sometimes we fight a case, sometimes we beg for mercy, right? And so there's different skills that are involved in that. But the bigger challenge is mostly trying to communicate to someone else, you know, the qualities that you see in your client. Mm. Does that lead to a challenge with the people on the outside of the case, like people who don't know the ins and outs of the case. Like I, I'm, I'm trying to anticipate some questions that might be coming from people in our audience right now that might be going like, well, how can he do that? How can he defend somebody sure. that that um, doesn't deserve being defended? It's really interesting, John. And, and you know, I've always said the first time that I find someone I can't defend, I better I better find another line of work. So and I've you know, I've I've represented um 20 individuals charged with murder over the years. Okay. So, you know, and actually more than that, I've tried 20 murder trials. So, you know, as I look back at that, what's interesting is that's the number one question that people on the outside don't really get their head around. They say, you know, how, how can you represent someone who's guilty? And frankly, to not put too fine of a point on it, um, mostly that comes from Christians. Mm, okay? right. <laughs> and so, you know, that is a real challenge. And I have to explain to them, you know, 
my, I can have a lot of different roles in this job. I can be someone's counselor and try to, to negotiate a disposition for them. Um, sometimes I can fight for them and try to say these allegations aren't accurate. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes I can try to be an intermediary and put some sort of a disposition together. So, you know, there's a lot of different roles. It's not always trying to get the guilty person out of the scenario. But to be clear, sometimes it is. And, you know, I got to tell you that the cases I lose sleep in are the ones that I truly believe my client's innocent. Mm. Because if you're representing someone who's guilty and they're charged with murder and you lose and go to prison, well, that's, you know, how the system works and what was supposed to happen. If you represent someone who is innocent and they get convicted, now you've got the weight of the world on your shoulders. Mm. And, And, you know, for me, it's always been much more challenging, much more stressful, much more difficult representing people who I believe are truly innocent because you know what's at stake. You know, if this if a guilty person goes free, our system is built that, you know, 100 guilty people should go free before an innocent person goes to prison. I mean, that's one of the premises of our system. And that's why we have such a high standard of proof of beyond a reasonable doubt. Right. What most people don't know until they're on a jury is that jury instruction for beyond a reasonable doubt says that probably guilty isn't good enough. Mm-hmm. It's got to be a, a standard greater than that. And so, you know, I think that's what, you know, people sort of miss um, is is the pressure of representing someone who didn't do it, right? Yeah. And, you know, at least for me, I think, you know, I've been a believer the entire time I've done this work. And for me, if if a um, someone who I knew to be guilty was acquitted – you know, I have a conversation with them about, hey, you know, you got a second chance here. Let's make sure you don't find yourself in the same position. Or, you know, if if they're at a place where they can hear this from me, we may even talk about, you know, maybe, maybe this is God giving you a second chance. You know, mm-hmm. you, there's there's another judgment besides what happens on this world. Mm-hmm. And you've got some decisions to make. And, you, you, you know, we got you through this. But, you know, you can either find yourself right back here again in a year or you can completely turn your life around. And so those are the kind of conversations that I feel privileged to have with people because you are at that moment, you know, especially after you've just won a trial, you know, people have gone from one of the lowest moments in their life to one of the highest moments of their life. And they, you know, and it's not that instantaneous because they sit with you through the whole thing and you work together and you strategize and you do all this stuff and you you build that rapport. But, you know, I've had the opportunity to have conversations with people when they're very low and also when they're very high. And that's, um, you know, where you can try to make an impact in their lives in both places, really. Yeah. So what injustice in our justice system frustrates you the most? Um, well, there's a couple. The first one I would say is, you know, I, I have had a couple of cases where I think innocent people were convicted and that was incredibly difficult. And, you know, we do... I think, I mean, I haven't done a a comparative analysis of everybody else's justice system, but we certainly have one of the best, if not the best justice system in the world. However, if you follow anything like the Innocent Project, you you realize that hundreds of people have been wrongfully convicted and DNA has now proven that. So even if we do have the best, we still need improvement. Um, That's incredibly difficult when you feel like someone who, who didn't do it gets convicted. The other thing that has historically been bad or difficult, in my opinion, and is starting to change is that when you're dealing with um, a certain level of the population that is impoverished, sometimes they'll plead guilty to something just to get out of jail. So the law is going to change in January, and it might be going too far the other way. But historically, you know, you might have someone who has $250 or $500 bail and they can't get out. And the DA would say to them, hey, if you just plead guilty, we'll let you go, mm-hmm. right? So they create now they have a criminal record or a more significant criminal record or an additional criminal record. 
But, you know, in that indigent person's situation, if they've been in jail 5, 7, 10, 15, 30 days, who's not going to say, yeah, I'll plead guilty to go home? Right. right. Merely because they didn't have $250 to bail themselves out. And that was always a very frustrating thing. Early on in my career, I did a lot of um, assigned counsel work, which is basically like being a public defender, but you handle conflicts with the public defender's office, people they can't handle. And, you know, that was certainly more common when, when you were dealing with those clients. And it'd be a hard conversation with them to say, hey, man, you really shouldn't plead guilty to something you didn't do. And they're like, I don't care. I just want to go home. Mm. Right. And what do you say to that? Right. right. So. Right. You're painting a picture, I think, for us that maybe not a lot of people, I'm thinking, have have considered when they think about a defense attorney. Sure. You know, yeah, absolutely. what you're describing, it, I think probably shatters their minds a little bit. It might it like saying like a conversation that you said you you sometimes roll around to like, you know what? This isn't the only judgment that counts, you right. know, sure. like that, that I don't know that I've ever heard that talked about. That's not a news conversation. <laughs> <you> <laughs> Definitely know, not. But, Definitely not. Uh, so I think that's super powerful and something that's really important for people to understand Instead of these characters that we paint oftentimes um, of whatever, that they understand really the role that you're playing. You know, there's another thing as you were talking, John, that, that sort of came up to me um, about another injustice that's out there that people never think about. Uh, I have a client who was, who was charged with murder in a fight. He stabbed someone several times and ultimately he was acquitted in self-defense. Mm. Okay, so – the, the legal argument was, you know, he was in fear for his life. That was supported. Ultimately, he was found not guilty. Um, went on to graduate from a prestigious university. But even though he was found not guilty, if you Googled his name, and he had a very unusual name, hmm. okay, if you Googled his name, the first thing that would come up was charged with murder, you know, hmm. all these different news articles, television, you know, clips. And literally, it took him the better part of a decade to claw his way out of that. Wow. After he was acquitted, he, we ordered – and normally your, your whole trial is sealed. No one can get the transcript or anything. But he actually wanted the transcript. He was trying to get into the armed forces. They wouldn't take him even after reviewing mm. the transcript. He, was, he tried to be a, fighter, fire, uh, a firefighter in New York City. They wouldn't take him because he was charged. Now, he was acquitted, yeah. you know, found not guilty of the charges. But literally, it was only by, you know, he worked for a number of years at FedEx after that with an with a MBA. Okay. Wow. Ultimately, he knew someone who knew someone who got him a job despite that. And now, you know, he's doing well, but, you know, he's, he's a good five or eight years behind where he should be in his career just because it took him that long to get his foot in the door even after a situation like that. And, you know, I have people call me all the time asking, hey, is there a way that I can get this taken off the internet? Mm. Uh, it, it was 10 years ago, or I was found not guilty, or the case was dismissed, or right. all these crazy things. But you know what? In today's day and age, the only thing that matters in terms of the media in many instances is the arrest. Right. So once that's out there, what do you do to get it removed? Certain news agencies will, will listen to you and say, oh, we'll take it down. Some won't. And, you know, there's really no legal procedure to enforce them to take it down because the arrest did happen. Mm. You know, it's not like they're reporting something that's false, but, you know, I think it's a real injustice for people who, particularly who didn't do anything wrong. Mm. Um, maybe their case was dismissed right away. And in and, and a lot of cases, you know, can be totally based on false allegations mm. um, for retribution of one reason or another or monetary benefits or whatever the case might be. And for people to be carrying around this reputational baggage is really yeah. a, a, a different kind of injustice, but but one that's really very real. 
Oh man, again, that's something I hadn't given a lot of thought to. Um, but I've realized, you know, I think it doesn't take a, a scholar to really look around at our society and go, if you're accused of something, people will dismiss you right away. Like it, 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 it just becoming kind of this fever pitch in our society now that, that as soon as like, uh, let's take a pro athlete or a famous entertainer or whatever, all they have to do is be accused of something. And all of a sudden, all their endorsements, everything, people just start to leave mm -hmm. whether or not they did it, they were guilty or not. And, right. So um, legally you still are innocent until proven guilty, but not in the court of public opinion. Right. 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 You know, I want to come back to, you mentioned something, uh, you made a comment about mostly it's when you talk to church people you know, I think a lot of our listeners, they're struggling with whether they should follow Jesus. And somehow here you are, you follow Jesus, you're a lawyer, you see the justice system. But when it comes to injustice in the church, what frustrates you the most? We could have a, a whole series of podcasts on that probably. <laughs> Maybe we should. <laughs> um, well, I, I mean, just I don't want to get too far off track, but so I sort of grew up in a family where I had two older brothers who got in trouble. One of them actually went to prison, which I think had some effect on my career choice and the path that followed therefrom. Um, but as a result of that, my parents put me into a private Christian school. And it was a very controlling sort of guilt-based Christianity that I really rebelled against. And, and interestingly enough, I mean, I kind of blew out of that school when I was a, a, a freshman. And, you know, I only came back around to religion on my own terms maybe a decade later, well, probably 15 years later. Um, but, you know, I, I had a whole series of growing up in a very um, legalistic environment that was rules-based as opposed to relationship-based. And so, you know, there was a lot of injustice there. You know, I, I can cite one of my classmates um, after I left, but someone I had gone to school with kindergarten through ninth grade was, you know, a girl who unfortunately became pregnant in high school. And, and the school's response was, well, we have to kick you out. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, well, that's not really what I think Christianity is supposed to be about. Maybe, right. you know, I thought it's supposed to be about acceptance and okay, you know, this isn't the ideal situation, but we love you anyway. And we're going to support you and we want to, you know, do what we can to help. And, and so like, you know, I just, there was a lot of that. So, you know, I've drifted towards churches or not drifted. I've sought out churches that are more like Browncroft that are, you know, come as you are. And we let God work with you on what you need to improve basically. Mm. Um, so, you know, I, I think, it, you know, the injustices in church are, are largely based on the very specifics of the congregation that you belong to or the, the particular denomination or, you know, even sub-denomination that you're involved in. So, Well, let's, uh, let's go to the positive because sure. I, I think what's hard is there's the perception of Christianity versus what Christianity actually teaches mm -hmm. and what Jesus actually teaches. So... As a lawyer in this justice system, what do you think Christianity uniquely brings positively to the justice system, you know, in your experience? Well, so I think from from my own personal belief system of Christianity, it's, you know, he, he without sin throw the first stone, right? I mean, you know, I, I certainly have my own flaws. They might not be the same as my clients, but I certainly recognize, you know, that people make mistakes and that, you know, it, it's between... You know, what they did on a moral level is between them and God. My job is to defend them at the legal standpoint. And if the government can't prove beyond a reasonable doubt that they did something, then we defend that. 
Um, if we think they can prove that, then we try to mitigate the consequences of it. You know, and that those are really the two day-to-day main things that I do is, is, you know, sort of fall into those two categories. As things have gone along, my practice has really changed and I'm more and more involved in sort of what they call white collar crime now. So, you know, bank fraud and money laundering and things of that nature. And in those, it's interesting, increasingly, sometimes you're able to, you know, a, a real grand slam or, or, or a touchdown, the winning touchdown is really, sometimes you can prevent people from being charged at all. So when you get involved in these big investigations, you know, with the Justice Department or the FBI or the Attorney General's office, and you catch wind of it soon enough, which oftentimes you do, sometimes you can prevent the client from even, you know, being charged publicly. And that mm-hmm. obviously is, is the best success you can have. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's really interesting the way things have developed over the last 19 years, because I don't think I could have told you 19 years ago exactly where I'd be sitting today, you know. Wow. Wow. You know, I, a, a few years ago, it's been like three years ago now, I, I was in a, took part in a jury. I was my first jury selection. Uh, and uh, it was actually a really fascinating experience. It was uh, for attempted murder. And uh, so the the thing went on for a few days. Mm-hmm. Um, but I realized in that moment, the seriousness of this. And John, did you get selected to be on the jury or did you just get interviewed to potentially be on the jury? No, I was actually selected to be on okay. it. And I, I, I was just as straightforward with them as I could be. I was like, they aren't going to pick me. I'm just going to be straight up. I'm, I'm going to answer every question they give me with just the straight up honest truth. And so, they, but for whatever reason, I was the second juror they selected on the, on the uh, jury. Okay. So, um, but but I'm sitting there and I'm realizing, oh my goodness, it is so easy for me in my daily life scr- scrolling through news stories to make assumptions about what happens in court um, and about the dynamic of every case. And, and we ended up taking, it really wasn't that complex of a case, but we ended up taking two full days as a jury because we wanted to make sure that we were coming to the right decision. Sure. You know, because all of us kind of felt that weight. Well, yeah, you take that job seriously. Yeah. Especially in an attempted murder trial. I mean, it's not, it's not DWI or shoplifting. I mean, this is, this is heavy stuff. Right. Right. And so, um, there was a, there was a weight to that responsibility that I didn't even sleep the, the night before we came down with the verdict because I realized how serious this was. Mm -hmm. Are there points for you that it gets like that like, cause uh, I actually, the judge came in afterwards and he had a conversation with all of us as jurors and he said, oh, you know, hey, how, you know, how was the experience? I want to let you know some of the details of the case. And he was very great. Mm-hmm. Um, but I asked him the question. I said, are there just times where you can't sleep because you feel the weight of the responsibility that you have, you know, in, yeah. in a case like this? I mean, absolutely. I mean. When you're on trial is a very weird time in life, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, you know, generally speaking, if I'm leading up to a significant trial, I'm working, you know, 50% of the time for two weeks on the case, then full-time two weeks on the case, and then the trial. Mm -hmm. So, you know, those days, I mean, the way that the court's set up now and the state's not allowed to have overtime and all this other weird stuff, the days are a little bit shorter than they used to be. But my days aren't any shorter. You still end up working 12, 14, 16 hours. It's just you're not in court quite as long. So, I mean, that that's definitely a taxing and trying time. Mm. Um, you know, for whatever reason, I think there's a part of me that I'm, I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie. Mm-hmm. So 
from that standpoint, I really thrive on that, which is one of the reasons I've tried so many cases yeah. um, is that, you know, I'm not afraid to try a case. I actually enjoy trying cases. I wish I tried more cases, to be honest. Mm. Um, but you have to have the right client and the right facts and the right set of circumstances in order to be able to get there, right? Sure. Um, because you don't want to try a case if it's going to be detrimental to your client. You want to try the case if you if either there's nothing to lose or you got a chance to beat it. So, mm-hmm. you know, those don't come along all the time. Um, you know, it, it, previously in my career where I was doing a lot of murder work, you have nothing to lose because if you plea, you get 25 to life. If you get convicted after trial, you get 25 to life. So, yeah. you know, there really wasn't a reason not to do it under those circumstances. So, um, but when you start to get away from some of those instances, it's harder um, it's harder to get a trial or even with a very serious case. I mean, you know, I've had attempted murder where someone could get 25 years in prison and they offer your guy five. Right. Well, it's hard to say no to that, right? Mm. So, you know, you you have to feel pretty confident about your chances of success to to turn that down. Right. Um, so, you know, it's just over time, it's gotten harder to get that. But it's, um, you know, certainly when you're in the midst of it, it's, you know, you get to, you know, you get to sleep out of exhaustion yeah. more than anything else. I bet. So, you know, we're, uh, we're coming to kind of closing this up, I, I guess. That was fast. Well, no, 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 no. <laughs> we, we still got some more time. Um, you know, if, uh, but here, here's kind of a question that I'm thinking about, because I, I think for our listeners, you know, we hope that there's a few of you that are lawyers, judges, and police officers. But for most of us, I think the most practical you know, just response to this is how we talk about court cases, justice system, and news. I'm going to give you a continuum, and I want you to somewhat respond to it. We we have, um, and I don't mean to be pejorative, I'm just using the language, we have our social justice warriors in the cancel, um, cancel culture that's just come up. We saw that, you know, a, a comedian from Saturday Night Live recently was basically forced to step down, not saying that that's right, wrong, or indifferent, that's just the culture we live in, mm-hmm. to, you know, we take the phrase that you said, you know, innocent till proven guilty. And I'm amazed at how many times on the other side of that, we defend people that look just like us, that are in the same socioeconomic path as us, whereas if someone else that might be different than us, you know, so as you think of that continuum, cancel culture, social justice versus what our justice system says, innocent till proven guilty, you know, how can we live I'm not going to say balance because I don't think that that's fair. How can we live in harmony with both of those extremes and even how we talk about it? Because I think at the end of the day, the biggest response to this is how we talk about the justice system, how we influence and how we encourage. Um, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, that's a really tough question. And it's it is tough because it would appear as though our society is becoming more and more divided all the time. And people are getting further apart. There's not a lot of dialogue for centralism or dialogue for open, honest, and respectful debate. Okay. Um, certainly we can see that in politics, but I think even in the justice system, it, it sort of goes that same way. And, and and what I would say is, you know, we all have to go on what your life experience tells you. I mean, I think we all, you ha- everyone has to use their common sense, which is informed by what your particular experience is. I recognize in my experience is vastly different than 99.9% of the population because not a lot of people have tried 20 murder trials, right? Not a lot of people have been a criminal defense attorney for 17 years and a DA for two years before that. So, you know, I recognize that my unique perspective is different. But, but what I think that I would say to everyone is no one is right 100% of the time. 
So you always have to have that thought in your mind, I think, as a responsible human who's trying to continue to learn throughout their life of, you know, I might not be right. There's at least some possibility that I'm not right. And, and you know, I, I think it's healthy to remind ourselves of that every once in a while because, you know, when you see a steady diet of, you know, whatever it might be, you know, there's certain DAs who work in a drug bureau or whatever, right? They'd see a steady diet of drug addicts every day. Well, you know, somebody who comes before them might not be a drug addict. I mean, there might be some other reason that they find themselves in this position. And when you foreclose that as a possibility, I think that's where our justice system fails, mm. right? Um, you know, when you foreclose the possibility that no one would confess to a crime they didn't do, well, we now know that's not true because DNA has cleared people who've confessed to crimes they didn't commit. So I, I think you just have to sort of, you know, say, hey, you know what, maybe I'm right 90% of the time or 95% of the time, but you got to be open to being wrong. And I think that, that these two extremes that we see in so many areas of life, conservative, liberal, Republican, Democratic, you know, Social warrior versus, you know, the you know the conservative um, or, or the, the liberal approach to, to criminal defense. Um, you know, you just people have to sort of recognize that that there is another side of the story, and if you don't try to be informed or at least try to listen to the other person's point of view, you're probably missing something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What I mean, I'm I'm just guessing, and I I uh, you know I I work with college students who are mm -hmm. very you know, engaged in social matters and, sure. and very kind of like they're on board with, with, I think a justice in a way that, that a lot of them is a really healthy dynamic, you know, mm -hmm. they, they, they yearn for that. Um, if you were to give people one step forward in this, like you're, you're somebody who's in this day in, day out, let's talk to that demographic, you know, young people either in college or just out of college, who are like, how can I really make a difference? Like, is there a, is there something that I can do in this justice system that will, you know, yes, we might be in the greatest justice system in the world, but, but how could I be a part of making it even better? What would you tell them? I mean, I think it goes back to the answer to the last question, which is you have to listen to other people. And, and mm. you know, I, I think, you know, I was just having a debate with a with, with a friend's kid who recently graduated from graduate school with a social work degree, and it became pretty clear that they don't have the ability to consider other opinions other than their own, right? And so, you know, one of the ways that I've done that, because I got to tell you, you know, when I probably got out of law school, I probably had a set of opinions that are far different and less informed than what they are today. And the way that that's changed over the years is by interfacing with people who are different than me. Okay, I represented a lot of inner city African-American indigent clients in, in the beginning, and that gave me a whole different perspective about the world than what I learned growing up in Livonia, New York. Mm. Okay, I've, I went on from that, and I've, I've represented people um, who have mental health issues, and I learned from them a whole lot of things that I didn't know as well. And I, I've represented people who are you know, far more affluent than I am, and I've, I've learned things about some of the problems in their life that you wouldn't necessarily understand or see until you're sort of in it. And, you know, somebody told me a long time ago, I don't know if it was my father or my uncle or someone in my family said, you know, I've never met someone who I couldn't learn something from. Mm. And I've tried to bring that approach to my day-to-day -day work. And, and, you know, if I sometimes to build rapport with my client, maybe they're a plumber or electrician or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. I'll ask him a question about like, hey, I've been working on this thing in my house and I don't understand this. Can you explain it to me? And sometimes it's merely for the purpose of building rapport. Mm. I mean, and sometimes it's real. Maybe it's right. a problem I solved on my own, but I wanted to get their perspective on it or 
you know, maybe it's something my, you know, whatever, but like, you know, I, I've tried to engage with people in a way that's like, hey, I'm not just here to bark at you or tell you what to do or explain to you your options. You know, if I can express to you that you have value to me, yeah, then it builds our rapport in a way that you can't replicate any other way. And I truly have learned an immense amount from people over the years that I never would have learned if I hadn't asked the question. Wow. Right? Yeah. I think that's a bit of wisdom that not a lot of people are are hearing today. I think inherently people understand it, but they don't do it. So to get a very direct answer to your question, John, Mm -hmm. I would say that those people who want to get involved, who want to make a difference, should engage with people unlike themselves, whether that is going down to the soup kitchen and working there or, you know, um, working in a prison ministry where they go in and and speak to people who are serving a life sentence or a 25-year sentence or whether that is um, to, you know, um, get engaged in some other area. But I think it's important to sort of... um, get yourself outside of your comfort zone and hear the perspective of other people. Cause it's real easy in a college environment, right. To hear from your professor and the 22 kids who are sitting around you. And in, depending on your school, sometimes there might be a, a very diverse opinions in the 22 people around you, but it seems more and more it's becoming more homogeneous. Right. And I see you shaking your head. You work with yeah. these college students. A lot of them have very similar ideas. And so you're not exposing yourself to alternatives or learning something from other people or sort of, you know, seeing something in a real world setting. It's one thing to to read about or learn about poverty. It's another thing to sort of sit with it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That that right there, I think, kind of flies in the face a little bit of it, it, it causes us to take a step back from some of the sense of activism. It's a very active thing that you're talking about, mm-hmm. but it kind of redefines activism a little bit for us. Right. Um, you know, it's so interesting to me that sometimes people, you know, march for a right that they don't, that they're not missing out on or that they don't, they're not the person who's being denied that right. Right. I mean, it's sort of, you know, it's sort of, there's a real world, um, brilliance and humanity to actually serving the people who have the need as -hmm. opposed to fighting for what you think they need. Wow. Wow. You know, before we get to our last question, I <clears throat> just from you sharing your story, you you became disillusioned with church, mm-hmm. um, and I'm sure we have a few twenty somethings that are going to be pursuing their own, um, whether they're going to go to law school and be a lawyer. I just want you to kind of give your perspective to them on why, in pursuing their vocation, not to quit on Christianity or not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I'm just curious how you would respond to that and help them. If Pretend that I'm one of those 20-somethings pursuing that. I want justice. What am I missing if I miss the real message of Jesus? Well, you know, I think whether or not you're pursuing Christianity, you know, if you've got that basis, if you've got that experience before you get to, to that point of you're furthering your education, but the moral lessons that Jesus taught should apply to us whether you're Christian or not. Right. And so, you know, I think that this generation, one of the things, you know, a lot of people complain about millennials, their work ethic or this or that. The other thing, I think that one of the things that's really admirable about this generation is that they truly want to do the right thing and they truly want to change the world. I mean, I see that in them. Okay. How they go about it or what they think the right way to do that is, is maybe a, in some instances a question mark, but they really have the desire to affect change. 
And what I would say to that is that if you apply any of you know, the examples that Jesus gives in the parables or his morals or what he stood for, irrespective of whether or not you believe he is or isn't the son of God or whatever the case might be, you will affect change in the world. Mm. Okay. If you do uncommon things, okay, if you hang out with, you know, the, the prostitutes and the tax collectors of your day and try to help them be better people, that is radical. That will change lives. If you turn the other cheek, in today's environment, even in a verbal conversation, mm-hmm. okay, that is radical in today's environment. That will change lives if you do it consistently and, and you know, with with purpose. And so, you know, for me, it made sense to, to come back to my Christianity because I believed in those morals and, and, and also because I felt God moving in my life. I felt the direction. I don't know how to explain to someone what they should or shouldn't do without having that personal connection that you know God is in your life, that he's predestined you to do what you're doing. I mean, I I guess I'll come at that a little bit of a different way, Peter. I feel super privileged in a couple of regards. One is I can look back at my life and even look at the tragedies, my brother going to prison, the difficulty I had sort of being an outsider in Christian school. And I can say, without question, those things contributed to my ability to do a better job doing what I do today. Um, Because it made me not care about what popular group thought. It made me understand the difficulties that happen to families when someone goes to prison. You know, I can look back and say, God prepared me to do this with all those steps. Now, I didn't always have that recognition. It came later. Um, But what I super feel privileged about and, and I think is important for people who do have a faith and they're pursuing their career Um, is that I feel super privileged to have my calling and my work be the same thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I've heard a lot of people over the years preach about, you know, look, I'm an engineer and I really feel called to preach the gospel, or I'm a a doctor and I really feel called to, you know, serve this underprivileged population, but I can't afford to do that. And so I feel super privileged that, you know, my work and my calling can be in the same breath, if you will. And I think, you know, that's something that people don't think about enough when they're thinking about their future. They think about, you know, making enough money or, you know, having a fulfilling career or, you know, pursuing a particular area of specialty without sort of thinking about, you know, is this something that's going to matter? Am I going to feel good about what I do every day? Is this something that's going to matter and change in the world? And I think people need to look at that a lot more closely. Wow. Wow. So here, here's our last question. And, you know, you kind of set us up well, which is, you know, what, what would Jesus teach us about the justice system? So, the cool thing is, is that John and I go first and then we let you close. So the funny part about it is because we're not legal ex- experts, we will, we can botch this up as much as possible and you can back clean up. So, okay, fair enough. So yeah, go ahead, John. Yeah. Wow. Well, I've just really enjoyed this conversation, James. Thanks for joining us. And it reminds me of a couple of different things. One is in the the Bible in Micah. Six eight. It's this. It's this call of God to like. What is? What should I do with my life? Like you can sense this struggle, right? That Micah has. Peter already had it pulled up, so I beat up to it. I, I love it. Uh, but Micah six eight kind of encapsulates. It says, "Hey, you want to know what I want from you?" God tells you know Micah, "You really want to know what I want from you? Here it is: to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God." That's what I require of you. Um, And then I love this too. 
and and what you're talking about, James, really just kind of resonates with somewhere in my soul, because I think about Jesus describing who the Holy Spirit is in our lives. And he says, the word he uses is, uh, he says he's our, our advocate. He, he actually is like our defender. He is, it's a legal term actually that he uses, paraclete. He walks alongside of us. He, he advocates for us. And so in a very real way, what you're doing for people is playing that role in their life. And it's like you're living out this very real experience that God does for us. He advocates for us. And in and and times when we even, he even knows, quite frankly, our guilt. And, and that's the kind of the, should be the shocking thing for us as Christians who, who claim to be Christians should be, kind, we shouldn't be the first people. I'm sorry. We shouldn't be the first people to, to jump on the judgment bandwagon because we should have an awareness of where we're coming from and the brokenness that, that we bring to the table too. So that's just a couple of thoughts that come to the top of my head. Peter, how about well, you you stole um, yeah. Micah six eight, yeah, but, there you go. but no, I'll um, you know. So I, as I was listening to James, and as I was listening to you, you know, the cross is where the justice of God met the mercy of God, and any healthy justice system will do that. Mm. And so that's not unique to America. I think there's others. And what I think about that is <clears throat> that's our call to live out both justice and mercy that maybe it's not intention, but it's two sides of the same coin. Mm. You know, we talk a lot about grace and truth. You know, Jesus came the full embodiment of grace and truth to actually be too truthful is not to be gracious, but actually to be too gracious is not to be truthful. And so we look at Jesus embodying that, that there were moments when Jesus would go right to the issue and there were other moments where Jesus would would offer grace. And I think about, you know, this goes to personal relationships, but, you know, I'm challenged today and I hope our listeners are challenged today when we talk about trials, you know, when and legal trials, when we talk about the things that happen in the news and CNN and even, you know, people getting sued that we'd be reminded these aren't just issues, but there are real people involved and to be able to put ourselves if that was me or even my brother, my wife, my husband, my mother, my father, how that changes everything. So we'll go with that. And uh, James, how, do you, how would you bring Jesus into this conversation? I mean, for me, I think it's a very personal part of it. You, you know, the, one of the things that allows me to do what I do, because certainly along the way, you see some injustice happen. Um, one of the thing, the only way that I've been able to have solace to that is to know that God's got a bigger purpose. And so, you know, I've certainly seen lives that have been changed while people were in prison. Um, and, I, you know, I, when you see someone go to prison for longer than you think they should, or maybe you think they shouldn't go at all, you know, with what God is able to do, I mean, in any circumstance, to me, that that is like, well, you know, he's got a bigger plan that is beyond my comprehension. So in a personal way, that that's where, what God brings to it that allows me to to keep going. Right in the face of, you know, what I would say would be a personal failure or I screwed this up or this case didn't turn out the way that I wanted it to. You know, I've seen those things. I've been around long enough now to see some of those things come around and produce fruit that you would have never anticipated. So, you know, I, I think it's that old. 
idea that, you know, God can work miracles out of any circumstances. And, and, you know, I mean, even if you go back to, you know, Paul in jail, right. I mean, some of the things that happened there were unanticipated. And so that's sort of where I see it. Um, you know, that's not something that other people can employ sort of the, the, the conversations that you guys had, but you know, that without that, I couldn't keep doing what I do. Cause you would take, you know, one failure, one loss, one, or, or certainly the, the, a culmination of several of them in a way that you go, I just can't do it anymore, right? So for me, it's it's that grace, knowing that God's got a bigger and better plan that allows me to sort of keep going even when things get difficult. Mm. Wow. Um, I, you know, I hope that as we close today that you share this podcast episode with what James was talking about to, you know, your family and friends. I hope this informs your conversation. Think of you having coffee with James as you listen to this. Uh, if you want to find out more about the Why God Why podcast, you can go to whygodwhypodcast.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, so follow us there. As we love to say, sharing is caring. And lastly, um, we want to really encourage you for people to find out about this podcast, for you to review us on iTunes or Google Play. Um, that just helps raise us in the charts above. So thank you so much for being here. We hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you.